0: Uh, if you're able, remain standing just one minute longer and join me in the book of Romans, chapter 13. We'll pick up this morning where we left off last week. We'll begin reading together from verse 8 through to the end of the chapter. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. This is the word of the Lord. Once more, let's petition the Lord in prayer. Father, we come today to uh, what is a simple but challenging command. To love one another. In fact, to love one another as you have loved us. And so, Father, as we consider uh, this grand, overarching command, might you give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to receive, and the strength or the will to obey. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen. May be seated. I sent you a quote this week in my weekly newsletter. If you didn't get it, allow me to share it with you. The Christian life can be boiled down to this. Love everyone perfectly and then do whatever you want. The Christian life can be boiled down to this. Love everyone perfectly and then do whatever you want. It's not original to me. In fact, I'm not even sure who said it. It's been quoted so many times, we're not sure of his origin. And maybe that's for the best, right? Because we might just go and, like, build a statue to that guy, right? And start offering sacrifices. Brilliant, isn't it? It's brilliant. It's simple, and yet it's a brain teaser if you take some time to meditate on it. Love everyone perfectly. And then you can just... You can do whatever you want to do. So long as it doesn't contradict loving everyone perfectly. It's great. It's great. Love people genuinely. Love people genuinely. The Constitution and bylaws of Hillcrest Baptist Church begins that way. In the some of the opening paragraphs, it states. Hillcrest Baptist Church exists to love people genuinely. That was the first concrete Hillcrest distinctive established in the earliest days of my tenure as the next pastor at Hillcrest Baptist Church. Imagine for me, if you will, a scene. It's a real-life scene that really happened. Imagine a small living room and about 10 people gathered around in a circle, some younger, some older, all of whom have spent the majority of their lives in the church. We prayed together, we talked, we shared our thoughts about the season ahead and the work that we hoped to see God do in and through Hillcrest Baptist Church. We were all anticipating what was coming up. We need a mission statement, someone in the circle posited. We need a mission statement. Church doesn't have one. We certainly need one. Something clear, they said. Something untrendy that that will stand the test of time, right? A statement we can revisit again and again like a compass to keep us in a biblical direction. We need this. The first phrase should set the tone for the rest. It's the foundation of the statement. It's the cornerstone on which everything that would follow would be built. So what's first? What's primary? What's the foundation? And so the first of three simple statements was love people genuinely. Many of us in that circle had experienced the greatness and the joy of a loving church family. How in hard days there is support. In confusing times there is clarity of gospel purpose found within the loving church. How in hard days um, there is support and good days, there is celebration The church has been a great blessing to us, seated in this living room. Some of the people who you love and respect the most at this church right now were in this little circle. And we reminisced on the great joys of a loving church family. However, several of us, perhaps even all of us, had seen and experienced, if you will, the dark side of the church. Right? When men with unchecked ambitions use the people of God as pawns to achieve their goals instead of as the sheep of God entrusted to their care. We had witnessed factions and backbiting, spiritual depravity in the levels of leadership. Unchecked conflict, spineless pastors afraid to confront sin in the church for fear that donations might be hurt by it. Our personal experience in that room confirmed the observation the church has been a place of hurt and trauma far too often over the last 2,000 years. What was going on in those places and those people that were agents of harm instead of love? Where did something that perhaps started off good go off the rails? What was missing? And the answer is clear and obvious. It it rings like the chime of crystal glasses clinked together on New Year's Eve. Love. Love was missing true genuine christian love not hocus pocus fuzzy feelings mushy sappy nonsense love join me if you will in what should be a familiar passage to many of us first corinthians chapter 13 just one book over to the right a handful of pages in your bible If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, very, very smart. If I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am, what, unhelpful? Nothing. 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 If I give away all I have, my generosity and my success, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, which, for what it's worth is to say, it assumes the best. It's the best English rendering of that in the Amplified. It believes all things. It assumes and hopes For the best, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never ends. Other things will end, Paul says, but love never ends. True Christian love. What must Hillcrest Baptist Church be about then? That kind of love, right? That kind of love. It never ceases to bring me joy when new visitors or new members tell me um, what a loving, kind, well... Wa- <laughs> the phrase in my mind was warm and welcoming. I didn't do my she sells seashells by the seashore this morning. You know you need unique New York. Anybody else? Yeah? Okay. It never, it never ceases to bring me so much joy and pride in the, in the best of ways, hopefully. Lord, forgive me. When people tell me, loving, such a loving church family to one another and to us as we were first welcomed in. We might not be a whole lot of things, hip, for starters, okay? But loving we are. And so for that Not only am I grateful, but but we are blessed. We're blessed. The Bible has a lot to say about love. It's a big mysterious fill-in-the-blank for a big part of the world. The Bible is clarifying. It says a lot about love, loving God, loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, and so on. And therefore, this morning, we'll start a new mini-series where we'll take our time in these verses from Romans 13. It's one that I'm calling the Law of Love. And for what it's worth, here you go. This is part one, the call to love. Next week, we'll talk about the urgency of love, and then week three will be the specifics of love. There's the call The urgency and the specifics, all right here from Romans 13, 8 through 14. And so as we begin a a new series, if we're going to spend three whole Sundays, we only get 52 of these a year, by the way, friends, right? So if we're going to spend three on love, uh, we better define our terms, right? So let's begin there. If you're taking notes, number one, with the definition of love the definition of love join me in exodus chapter 20 all the way at the beginning this is the sunday of familiar passages 1 corinthians 13 was uh, according to some statistic it was the most quoted bible verse at weddings like in human history or whatever, since they started recording these things. And now, of course, we have Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, the definition of love. Well, what is love? According to Merriam-Webster, the ever-changing online dictionary, love is strong affection for another, strong affection for another, based on kinship, personal tie or sexual desire a strong affection based on kinship you're related somehow personal tie you have a connection or sexual desire what does the bible say love is that's the question right well jesus gave us a few definitions that we can choose from and work together jesus said greater love has no man than this that he do what lay down his life for his friends. Then he went and did so. The Ten Commandments, however, are also helpful in helping us to define love biblically. In fact, I'm grateful for the way that John MacArthur actually walks through each of these Ten Commandments and associates a particular characteristic of love with each of them. I'd like to share that with you now. Verse 2, commandment number 1, Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. First characteristic of love love is loyal. No other gods. Love is loyal. Second command, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. No images. This is why Puritan churches would not have the cross in the background. No images. Very sensitive to the idea of an image being revered. You should have no images Love is faithful. It's loyal, but it's also faithful. Verse 5, third command, you shall not, well, that continues. Verse 7, third command, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Love is reverent. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, verse 8. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, a stoppage to the Lord your God. On it yet yeah, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it Holy, remember the Sabbath, love is devoted. If you love God, you'll be loyal to him, faithful to him, reverent in your interacting with him and his word, be devoted to him above all else, which is to say, set apart. And it moves from the vertical to the horizontal, as it's often said, from God now to neighbor. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Love is respectful. Respectful. You shall not murder. Love is protective. It doesn't take life. It protects life. You shall not commit adultery, verse 14. Love is pure. Love doesn't defile others' purity. Lust does that. Love is pure. You shall not steal. Love is unselfish. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Love is truthful. That's why the hardest thing for parents often to do is to inform their rebellious son or daughter that they are at odds with the God of all creation by their life and their lifestyle. But it is the most loving thing to do, because love doesn't lie. It's truthful. And then finally, the tenth and final commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not covet or be envious, jealous of, because love is content. Love is content. That's helpful, isn't it? What is love? Ten commandments, ten attributes, right? The broken and sinful world in which we live says a lot of bogus stuff about love. It asks questions about love, like what love has to do with it. I don't know what love or what it exactly is. Only in the Bible do we find true love and the requirements of true love. Well, that's a brief definition of love. Let's talk number 2 about this phrase from Romans 13:8, this debt of love. Let's go back to Romans 13 where we began this morning. I heard a lot of pages flipping earlier. I hear less pages flipping now. I'm wondering if you're getting tired or paper cuts. <laughs> Romans 13. I'll make you a deal. We'll stay here for a while. Owe no one anything, Romans 13, verse 8, except to love each other. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Owe no one anything except to love one another. Well, this is not about borrowing money. Owe no one anything. In fact, that phrase has been used to justify uh, a, a, a biblical abstinence from ever taking out any kind of a loan. The Bible says, Owe no man anything. Well, it does, okay? But the Bible says a lot more about borrowing and lending. In fact, just for your benefit, you can see here on the screen, there's a few reference points, Deuteronomy, 13, excuse me, Deuteronomy 15, Leviticus 25, Exodus 22. Um, in each of these instances, uh, God puts parameters on how lending and borrowing is to be done morally and wisely. Uh, this is not Paul's point here. But just because this verse has been chucked around like a ninja star, uh, let's uh, take a moment, if you like, this week and read some of those. And what you find is, is that the, the lender is to do so uh, for the one who is in need freely and generously. But he's allowed to make a profit. He's allowed to exact interest. He's just not allowed to exact um, it's a strange word in, in Old Testament language. It's like usurious, but basically it means exorbitant interest, abusive interest. I've got you over a barrel. I'm your only hope, so I'm going to hammer you with interest. That's, the Bible forbids that. The Bible also forbids the one who can lend not to lend to the one who's in need. And that's the key with all of these things, is that it's not against God's Parameters to lend or to make a profit. It's not against God's parameters to borrow based on need. There's a whole lot of uh, warning about borrowing based on want. See, there's no really where in the Bible where it endorses borrowing based on want. I just want a new truck. You know, mine's 23 years old. I just want one. But that's not, that doesn't work, right? Actually, Don. Don had to fix his like, new pretty truck recently because something that shouldn't have broken broke and it wasn't under warranty. And he was out like a G. You know what I mean? Like just a grant, just boom. Sorry, Don, I'm sharing your business. <laughs> Anybody wants to donate to Don's truck fund? <laughs> the laborer is worth his wages, I'm just saying. No. No, it's not about want, and it's not about abstinence from borrowing and lending. God gives parameters for that. This is not the point of Romans 13, verse 8. Yes, Paul is saying, pay off your debts, owe no one anything. It is inconsistent for the Christian to take out a loan and not pay it back. That's a very small part of what's Paul, what Paul's getting at. And that basic moral principle is certainly being reinforced by Paul. If you take out a debt, pay it back. That's like when God says, if you, if you make an oath to me, I require you to honor it. Yeah, I'm not requiring you to make oaths to me, but if you do, you've got to hold it up. Okay, Similar fashion. No, what's really going on here is something much greater. Continuing the, the payment theme of the previous verses in Romans 13, let's read them together. For because of this, you also pay taxes... For the authorities are ministers of God, verse 6, attending to this very thing, verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, owe no one anything except to love each other. Paul adds love as yet another thing we owe. Taxes, duties, honor, respect, get this, all of those things can be paid in full. You can give the appropriate respect. You can pay off your tax bill. But as Stephen Runge puts it, love cannot be measured either in the giving or withholding. It's great. Love cannot be measured either in the giving or withholding. And by tagging love onto this end of this, this list of imperatives, Paul portrays love as an ongoing obligation, a debt of love that can never be fully paid. Now, this is interesting. Um, only in so much as we live in a world where um, wokeness and critical theory are taking over the cultural landscape in our universities, in our politics, in our school systems, and so on. Wokeness and critical theory has essentially as its backdrop a debt that the oppressors in society owe to the oppressed based on their own subjective definitions of this but it's a debt that you owe in perpetuity. You cannot say I'm sorry enough times. You cannot give away enough of your resources. You cannot think about your privilege enough. You cannot uh, defer potential advancement to another. You cannot do enough of these things enough times, enough sacrifice to ever pay off your debt to the oppressed. Now, this is incredibly antithetical to the biblical worldview. Because the biblical worldview says, in fact, we do owe a debt. Only it's not to the oppressed, but it's to God, who said, this is my law, live by it or suffer the consequences of it. And so we are indebted to this law. We broke it in sin, and therefore we owe a payment, only we can't pay enough. So it sounds almost like a gospel, the critical theory does. You owe a debt that you can never fully pay. But see, the gospel swoops in and says Jesus paid that debt. And now the only ongoing debt, the only ongoing obligation that you owe to any man has nothing to do with the oppressor or the oppressed or the history of a nation or perceived slights or advantages. The only debt you owe is love. However, to owe love and to pay love is incredibly sacrificial, deferential, perpetual. It's just a very different way of getting there from a satanic, critical theory and wokeness mindset. This is the new command Jesus gave. He said, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you love one another. Now, in Romans 6, verse 14, Paul says something interesting that seems to contradict this entire premise of being in debt to God or in debt to each other for love, to have this ongoing obligation of love. Paul says we are not under law, but we are under grace. You're not under law. You don't owe a debt to the law. You're under grace. Now, many Christians today take that to mean the law of God, therefore, is null and void. You shall not murder or steal or lie. or That's all the old stuff. Maintain sexual purity, old stuff, right? It's the same as you shall not eat shellfish, right? It's all null and void. We're all under grace, grace, God's grace. The problem with that is that that's not what Paul said. Paul said we are not under the law. That is, if we are hidden in Christ, the law and its requirements of man no longer condemn us because we can't keep them. We can't keep them. They condemn us. We come from the womb, condemned by the law of God. But if we are hidden in Christ, we are no longer under its condemnation. The word is hypo, H-Y-P-O in the Greek. It means under the control of. Like the law was driving the car, and you're along for the ride, in the back seat in your car seat, As sinful as the day is long, barely able to hold a pacifier, right? And from that moment forward, you did nothing with your life but reinforce that again and again and again. I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. And the law is driving the car right off the cliff of destruction. And Paul says, in Christ, you're no longer under the control of the law. The law would take you because you're sinful right off the cliff. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. He says, but but now no longer is the law driving the car. But does that mean that the law is abolished? Bad? Evil? Foolish? No. Since Jesus' death, we are under the control of grace, and that's good news the undeserved favor and inexhaustible forgiveness offered through Christ. That's great. Under the control of the law of God, living by its expectations and dying according to its ramifications, Jesus earned the right to be in God's holy presence. And he offers a a share of that inheritance to us if we would but believe and confess that he is Lord. Now, if we are under the control of the law of grace, then, which states you cannot, did not, could not earn your place in God's holy presence. It was given to you. Well, in exchange, Jesus is your Lord. He's your Lord. That means you do whatever he says to do. Now, question. If we are no longer under the law, but under grace, as Paul said, that's under the control of, doomed, if you will, by its... Ramifications. No longer under the control and doomed by the law, but under the control and, if you will, doomed to its ramifications, the law of grace, which is to say we inherit his righteousness. If that's the case, are we free from the law's requirements? That's the question. Free from its condemnation in Christ, are we free from its requirements? And see, the the Christian who is overtly and predominantly preoccupied with grace wants to say, yes, we're free from the requirements of the law. But the biblical answer is, no, you're not. You're free from the condemnation of the law because you could not keep the law. You're not free of the requirements of the law. The gospel states You no longer serve yourself. You no longer serve your sin. You no longer serve the power of darkness. But it does mean you serve someone, and that someone is Jesus. And Jesus said, go make disciples and baptize them and do what? Teach them to? I've heard heard more enthusiasm at a Golden Corral buffet than... i start again. Go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the, Ho- the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Right? teaching them to do what? Obey. obey everything I commanded you. Does that sound like a person who is under no requirement? Teach them to obey everything I commanded you. That's not a person who is just like free to determine their own destiny, their own definition of what is good and what is evil, what's right and what's appropriate, what's helpful and what's not. That's a person who has a new master. That's a person who has a new Lord in a, in a fashion that we, as 21st century Americans, with all of our autonomy and all of our self-government, we can't even, we can't get this in our heads the same way a first century audience would. I mean, maybe our military men can understand this. Uh, just show of hands, men and women who have served in the military. Can we, can you, got a handful, one, two, three, it looks like. First of all, thank you for your service. I mean, right? Right, folks? Yeah. Yeah. But second of all, you, you, you men, uh, it looks like I think we had three, yeah, three men. Uh, my sister as well. It's not exclusive to men, but you—you you guys know what it means to have a Lord, right? I mean, a Lord who controls your every waking moment, your destiny, right? Your your highs and lows. You guys know what it means because when they say "up out of bed," it, do, it doesn't mean the same thing as when I say "up out of bed" to my kids. Good morning, right? Rise and shine. Come downstairs and get some Cheerios. It's time for church. Fifteen minutes later, Luke passed out in his bed. <laughs> like, like one of these. You know what I mean? No, in the military, when your when you're Lord, when your drill sergeant, when your commander says, jump, it's how high. When he says up, it's up. Romans 10.9 says, if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and God saved him from the dead, then we will be saved. Master, chief, commander, Lord. The law of God is good, says the psalmist, Psalm nineteen seven. The law of God is good, says Paul, 1 Timothy 1, 8. The law of God is good, says Jesus, Matthew five seventeen. The law is not bad. Jesus said it clearly. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Friends, we are, we are not under the condemnation of the law. We are under the requirement of the law. The law is not bad nor abolished. Rather, our inability to keep the law is acknowledged in Christ. Our inability to keep the law is acknowledged in Christ. There's three statements here. The curse of the law is avoided in Christ. And the whole of the law is fulfilled in Christ. I'll say it again just for you note-takers. Our inability to keep the law is acknowledged in Christ. The curse of the law is avoided in Christ. The whole of the law is fulfilled in Christ. But make no mistake, Christian, the law is still God's moral expectation of his people. And since we're stupid humans, and that's a no-no word in my house, Jesus made it real simple for us. He was asked, teacher, what's the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Other gospel translations include strength. Again, we're, we're on the uh, most familiar passages of the Bible theme this morning. This is the first and greatest commandment. He said the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he wrapped it up with this interesting statement, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and the prophets, which was a classic rabbinical or Jewish way of summarizing the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament hangs on this love God, love your neighbor. Here's what we need to grab a hold on to, friends. This is the point of this lengthy, exhausting, and exhaustive diatribe. The Christian is required to obey Jesus. I know, hard hitting stuff. The Christian is required to obey Jesus. This is not a suggestion. It is a command. Teach them to take my suggestions. Is that what the Great Commission says? Teach them to consider my counsel. Is that what it says? This is not a suggestion. It is a command. It is fundamental to your salvation that Jesus is your master. And being made into his disciple is to be taught to obey him more tomorrow than today. To cross the line of faith and become a Christian is to take out a loan that you spend the rest of your life attempting to repay, and that loan is love. And the payment is love. It's not sacrifices. It's not the rosary. It's not Hail Marys. It's not generous giving. It's not anything that you can muster on your own. It's love put in you by the new heart that God generates in you and then is expressed out of you in devotion and sacrifice and commitment to your master. You are not free, you are a slave. A slave to your debt of love to every fellow man. Every morning we should wake up and think, I owe love to every person I interact with today. Jesus did not suggest this, you owe this. dramatic presentation over. Okay. (laughs) I am in debt to the person who cuts me off 30 minutes from now on my way to work. I owe them a debt of love. I am in debt to the barista at the coffee shop, to the grocery store clerk. I owe them love. I am in debt to my fellow church member who is Lonely, hurting, mourning, rejoicing, who needs a break, who needs a word, who needs a bill paid. I owe them my love. I'm in debt. I woke up under the weight of a debt of love. This is not something I get to choose. This is not the mushy, spineless, Merriam-Webster, woke, nonsense, wishy-washy, self-serving love, but biblical love. Ten Commandments, 1 Corinthians 13, love. I am obligated to my Savior, who died a gruesome, painful, and heavy death to pay off my debt of sin to God. I owe every man, every woman, every child, and everything in between, biblical love today. Now, if you, if you might say, we, we quote this every morning, now, Lord, help me go and pay it. Help me go and pay it. Friends, I want, to hear, I want to say this as delicately as I can, and I want to put myself in the front row in, in the receiving end of this next instruction, right alongside you, okay? To do anything less than that is to sin by omission against your own confession, Jesus is Lord. Anything less is to sin by omission. Against your own confession, Jesus is Lord. Don't tell me Jesus is Lord and then go be rude to the grocery store clerk. Check your salvation. It might not exist. To do anything less is sin by omission against your own confession that Jesus is Lord. Friends, um, I think it's time that we take the sin of omission seriously. Omission, let's define it. It's a passive failure to do something. The sin of omission is a passive failure to do something. It's not active. I'm not actively kicking the dog. I'm passively not loving the dog. Right? That's the difference. It's not an action. It's a passive failure, especially something that has a moral or legal obligation. My concern, friends, is this. I've been in the church my whole life. Literally my earliest memories are of church things. I have a few that are earlier than that, that's like rock and roll music being played in the living room of my house as a little kid, but, and I think I had a Mickey Mouse guitar, and I'd come out there like my son Luke might, Wow, well, you know, anyway, sorry, we don't have time. I've been in the church my entire life, and my concern is that for the Christian community too often and too easily does a clear command come to our attention. Love keeps no record of wrongs, so reconcile. You know, bear with one another. Outdo each other in serving. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And, and, and we just kind of, yeah, that sounds nice, and, and just by omission, we just dismiss it. If we leave this place unwilling to apply this lesson, we are in habitual sin. I wake up in debt, a debt of love to everyone, I interact with my God and my fellow man if you are unwilling if you leave this place hard-hearted and say I'm not doing that I got my own stuff to do someone needs to love me I got my own issues I got my own problems friends you're in habitual sin against the Jesus that you call Lord the genuinely convi- converted Christian cannot live in habitual sin without debilitating inner turmoil The time of lazy Christianity is over, friends. For too many of us, we've lived in a time and place that that lazy Christianity passes for a a morally good person who is thought well of and who has a a sense of assurance of salvation, is accepted among other Christians in the Christian community. Uh, But I wonder how many of us would come after Jesus and say, I'll follow you, and he'll say, I don't know you. Why? Because we are unwilling to take this, I owe a debt of love to everyone today, and put it in our gut, and walk out of here ready to do it. Instead we go, there's a nice sermon, it's a little long, music was a little slow, I gotta get to lunch. And by omission, we just leave it by our passive dismissiveness to the clear commands of Jesus to reconcile wrongs, serve and give freely, hold no grudges, prioritize others. To live in habitual sin is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. To live in the habitual sin of omission is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Church? We are not afforded an option on this. Now that love is clearly defined, now that we understand, perhaps we're beginning to understand, that we have a debt of love, let's conclude with number three, the law of love. A phrase that seems to contradict itself. And if you're getting restless in your seats, I know, this has gone on for a while. Um, It's almost over, so hang in there. Give me two more minutes, okay? The law of love states something interesting, which will take three weeks to really fully define. But the law of love says Jesus showed true love when he gave himself as a ransom. In doing so, he filled full the law of God. He met God's requirements, and he offers to all who would believe his earnings. His earnings. He earned them. What? Righteous standing with God, freedom from sin and sin's condemnation, a clear conscience before God and man, a newfound ability to actually obey God with a a full heart. What is that? That's loving God and loving others. Now, I'm going to do something that I don't do often, and this is in closing. I'm going to give you some very direct points of application. I, I expect the Holy Spirit to apply the word to your hearts and minds. I expect you to be listening and thinking, and as we're studying God's word, you're going, you know what? I think I need to talk to that person. I think I need to double-check this. I think I need to establish a new habit or break an old habit that is sinful and unhelpful. I expect the Holy Spirit is doing that in ways that I can't even fathom. I couldn't come up with all the words and the points of application for the ways that the Holy Spirit will apply God's word to a hundred people in one place at one time instantaneously. I'm not that good. He is. Okay? And so I don't often give very specific points of application. I find it to be unhelpful. I'm, I even find it almost to be like, um, like, like, carrying someone with an injury who needs to rehab it by walking. I'm actually hurting you instead of helping you. So just understand that. But I do want to give these this morning. These are not original to me, uh, but in my reading this morning, these very clear instructions jumped out. Not this week. They jumped out to me. And uh, we're going to end here. Okay. I want to ask that you spend this week meditating on the debt and the call to love, and perhaps as you do, you might mend a quarrel, mend a quarrel, search out a forgotten friend, Replace suspicion with trust. Let an old bitterness die. Maybe ask the Lord to help you. Write a letter to someone who won't expect it. Encourage someone you know well with how much they mean to you. Keep a promise, keep a promise. I always tear up at that line and he will hold me fast that says he'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. I'm grateful because I would have fallen away, I would have left him, I would have abandoned him a long time ago hundred times over. And so this week, maybe husband, wife, keep your promise. The promise that you made to one another. To love and to hold and to cherish in good times and bad. And richer and poorer, in sickness and in health. As you looked into each other's eyes. Maybe not sin against each other this week and keep your promise. Reduce your demands on the people in your house. and conversely, increase your service for the people in your house. Say thank you. Just say thank you. Tell someone that you love them. My wife's family had this funny tradition that I I never understood the first probably 10 years of our marriage. Whenever they would get off the phone, with each other, or maybe leaving to go to some place, it was always be careful. Be careful. All right, see you later. All right, be careful. I'm like, what's. I mean, do I need to go armed? You know? I mean, like a good redneck, I always have my pocket knife, including this very moment, right? You don't even preach the word, right? Without what are we anticipating? You know, but what, what what it was it was it was like saying I love you. you know? I love you. I care about you. I wanna I wanna see you again. You know, so be careful. Sweet. Five more. Tell someone the truth. Tell someone the truth this week. Love them with the truth. Pray for an enemy. Pray for the unredeemed. You can't love them unless you pray for them. Anybody else see the Jesus Revolution this week? Movie? It's a story of the, the hippies getting saved out in California and how Calvary Chapel got started where I was educated and some of you have attended. Um, and, uh, and, and apparently what would happen was, you know, these hippies would be strung out and high on acid and things like that, and they'd be walking down the street of Chuck and Kay's neighborhood, walking right past their house. They'd go to one friend's house, and they'd get high, and then they'd just wander in the streets. And Kay, Pastor Chuck's wife, she would would just pray for them. She would just pray that the Lord would reach them with his love. Chuck said, now they're dirty hippies. They need a bath. Real thing, it's a direct quote from his mouth one of those hippies that was walking past Chuck and Kay's house, high on acid, again, his own testimony, Greg Laurie. And someone was interceding for him, and many others, and that someone was a sweet woman who, not in the spotlight. Pray for the unredeemed. Who knows who that person might be And who they might become. Two more. Send a check to someone you know who has a need. And then finally, in summation, if you will, ask God to help you to love the way Jesus loved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Word, how it confronts our sinfulness and our selfishness, and yet in the middle of that confrontation where we we see clearly, perhaps, for the first time, as your Word illuminates all over our sin and our selfishness, there as we sit in our muck and in our mire, we turn to the side. And seated in the filth with us is Jesus, not condemning us, but holding us, standing up, picking us up, washing us off. Father, I pray that we would sense both your conviction and your comfort as we examine our hearts as it relates to loving you and loving others. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray, amen. Let's stand for one last song, friends.